Hello, on Knowledge and Politics this week, we're looking at Michel Foucault, looking at Condiem. Uh, the reading for this week is Foucault's essay, Life, Experience and Science, which is a modified version of the introduction that Foucault wrote to the English translation of Condiem's book, The Normal and the Pathological. As such, it serves as a bridge between the work we've read by Condiem and to some extent also by Bachelard, and the reading by and on Foucault that we're moving on to next. Some of what Foucault writes about Conguillem could easily be a description of his own work, and insofar as it anticipates themes that we'll meet again later in the module, it therefore serves as a good introduction to, to what lies ahead. Before looking at the reading in detail, I want to take a step back to consider the picture of Foucault that may emerge over the next few weeks. Now, um, roughly speaking, I think one can identify four types of Foucault reading, and um, individual readers of this work won't necessarily be simply one type, but may combine these types in different ways. In this sense, I'm not intending to offer a neat classification uh, of all authors on Foucault who write about Foucault. Uh, fittingly, I think, as we're talking about Foucault, who himself hated being pigeonholed in this kind of way. So uh, I think we could say this. Some readings of Foucault draw him towards phenomenology and see him addressing questions to do with the conditions of experience and knowledge in a way that has ties in particular to a phenomenological reading of Kant. And if I were to name someone here, I'd perhaps uh, name Beatrice Han Pyle. Some readings, secondly, place Foucault in relation to rationalism and the history and philosophy of science. Sometimes this is done quite deliberately to counter the view that Foucault was somehow anti-rationalist or a relativist. And here one might think of the work of someone like Christopher Green. Thirdly, some take up Foucault's work to use it as a resource to explore ways of thinking about subjectivity, the body, power, resistance and so on, without necessarily worrying so much about where to place Foucault with respect to earlier philosophy. And no criticism implied at all, but this is something you, uh, you, you may find in, in authors approaching Foucault from social, political and cultural theory. Finally, some engage with Foucault with concerns shaped more by philosophical questions and their history. And here one might think of Johanna Oxala and J. Colin McQuillan. To offer full disclosure, so to speak, my own position, I would say, falls somewhere between the second and the fourth of these. That is to say, between uh, concern with Foucault and his relation to rationalism and the history of uh, history of rationality, and, uh, and an approach that looks at his work um, with questions to do with the history of philosophical problems uh, and the history of philosophy in view. Now I'm taking a moment to say this now in order to 
clarify how the material we've read so far might prepare us to read Foucault. Or conversely, indeed, how the reading of Foucault that we're just beginning sits with respect to the work on science and rationality that we've already covered. I think, personally, it's valuable to see connections between Foucault's work and that of figures such as Gaston Bachelard and Georges Conguien. But this is not intended to uh, restrain his more radical tendencies within what one might call the safe precincts of the philosophy and history of science. Rather, I think aspects of the work on science and rationality that we've met in Bachelard and Combien serve as conditions for some of the more experimental and innovative developments in Foucault's writing, especially towards the end of his life. The point, then, is less to claim Foucault on behalf of rationalism as it has been practised in the past than, than it is to allow Foucault's work to show us something, show us something new, perhaps, about rationalism and what it can become. That rationalism, or work on the structure and practice of rationality, can be wedded to the most concrete and practical concerns is evident early on in this piece. Foucault outlines what he describes as a separation in French thought between a philosophy of experience, of meaning, of the subject, and a philosophy of knowledge or rationality, of the concept. The former is the tradition of phenomenology that developed in France following the introduction of the work of Edmund Husserl and Martin Heidegger, and it's represented most notably, of course, by Jean-Paul Sartre and Maurice Merleau-Ponty. The second comprises figures such as Jean Carayès, Gaston Bachelard, Alexandre Creuret, and Georges Conguillem himself. Figures working in the philosophy of mathematics, the philosophy of science, the history of science. Foucault then writes, on the surface, the second one remained the most theoretical, the most geared to speculative tasks, and the furthest removed from immediate political inquiries. And yet, it was this one that during the war participated in a very direct way in the combat as if the question of the basis of rationality could not be dissociated from an interrogation concerning the current conditions of its existence. The participation to which he refers here is exemplified by Jean Calais, a young philosopher of mathematics who was heavily involved in the armed resistance to the Nazi occupation of France during the Second World War and who was eventually imprisoned and then shot by the Nazi army but not before writing a series of challenging and profoundly important texts on the historical character of mathematical thought. The last of which, on logic and the theory of science, was written in prison in Montpellier and published posthumously. Uh, incidentally, a new uh, translation of this text on logic and the theory of science New English translation has just been published. Conguillem was a friend of Cavalier's who ensured that his work was published following his death, 
and who was sharply critical of those philosophers of engagements, engagement, who stayed in Paris to write books on freedom. Um, historical detail aside, the lines quoted above point to an unbreakable tie between inquiries into the foundation of rationality and questions regarding the current conditions of existence. Foucault is writing about others here. We shall see that he shares the view that in order to address the current conditions of existence, one must also question the form, basis and practice of rationality. Foucault explains this perhaps surprising conjunction of reason and existence by referring back to the Enlightenment, and in particular to the question, what is Enlightenment, that Kant, among others, tried to answer back in the 18th century. As you recall from reading Foucault's response to Kant in his own essay entitled, What is Enlightenment? Foucault sees in Kant's response an unprecedented philosophical focus on the present moment that demands, he thinks, a coupling of reason and history. And I might add on a specific way of thinking about history that emphasises dispersion and contingency and that avoids appeals to narrative, cause and effect and notions such as progression and development. Foucault goes on to outline the kind of inquiry to which this may lead, writing that reason can have, quote, a liberating effect only provided it manages to liberate itself from traces of dogmatism, a task that cannot be accomplished once and for all. There is clearly a critical dimension to this work of reason in the sense that reason interrogates its own limits and its own conditions, and we shall explore this dimension over the next few weeks. As Foucault in this essay begins to introduce Conviam's work, you may recognise certain themes that we, that we met in reading Bachelard. For example, discontinuity, the separation of scientific thinking from common custom, and the idea of rectification. The history of the sciences is neither a history of the accumulation of truth, as if the truth were simply out there waiting to be discovered, nor a history of the coming and going of ideas, as if there were no claim to truth attached to them or no force to such a claim. Instead, the history of the sciences treats them as discourses dedicated to truth-telling, and therefore to discriminating between the true and the false. Again, Foucault is writing about Conguiem here, but it seems in past also about himself, in the sense that elsewhere he described his own work as a study of the ways that discourses began at certain points in history to treat specific phenomena in terms of the distinction between the true and the false. After ruling out two further approaches to history, as a catalogue of what scientists say, and as a retrospective evaluation of the past from the vantage point of the present, Foucault writes as follows. The history of the sciences can be constituted in its specific form only by considering 
between the pure historian and the scientist, the point of view of the epistemologist. Epistemology does not try to find and impose the correct principles for scientific practice. For example, the correct use of theoretical concepts, the correct methodology. Nor does it accept existing practice and simply describe, well, in Foucault's words, the internal schemas of a science at a given time. Rather, its aim is to reveal the normative principles by which a specific science at a specific time tells the difference between what is true and what is false. And in addition, to piece together the emergence of the apparatus by which this discrimination is made. In this sense, epistemology is driven by the critical impulse that Foucault identified earlier. It is, in effect, the critical practice that proceeds in step with science itself. And it is only as a pair that one can really speak of a critical practice of rationality. Understood in this way, epistemology is historical in the sense that it regards historical change as essential to the constitution of science and not as an unfortunate accident that each attempt to get it right must try to overcome. Rationality lies less in fixed principles than in the patterns of historical change it exhibits. This relates to the concept of error that we'll come on to later on. Now, uh, what happens when this conception of epistemology is brought to bear on biology and the study of life in Conguien's work? As we saw last week when reading Conguien, he shows that at the end of the 18th century, it was thought that pathology could be based on physiology, which is to say that physiology proposed a standard form of the living being and any departure from this standard form would indicate a pathological condition. However, this approach assumes that there is a tight connection between physiology and pathology that, he argues, Conguien argues, cannot be established because the pathology of a living being, for example, its disease, anomaly, and ultimately its death, is too specific to the individual. It follows that the epistemology of the life sciences has to accommodate this necessary specificity. Or to put it another way around, when dealing with the life sciences, epistemology and the practice of rationality as critique that it supports cannot aim at universality. Later in the semester, we'll see a similar idea play out in Foucault's conception of critique in its relation to ethics. Foucault then neatly explains the importance of vitalism as a marker for certain problems that might otherwise be concealed. The central point, which he draws from Conguien, is that the living being is irreducible to material processes as physics understands them. Once again, because of the significance of life, death and pathology. Yet this, this does not mean, however, that life should be treated as a fundamentally distinct domain. Conguiem argues that we need a way to articulate the specificity of life that does not detach it from the material world on the one hand, 
or from knowledge on the other. It's a really important idea, I think. And that thereby learning a lesson from vitalism, we learn a lesson from vitalism without adopting a vitalist position through and through. The specificity of life comes down to the uniqueness of individual living beings meeting their needs in changing environments. Knowledge is at once constitutive of such environments and a strategy for managing life within them. Now, as Foucault writes, life cannot do without a certain value assertion and the articulation of life through knowledge should recognise this. How so? Conguiem writes that, like any other organism, the human being perceives and orders things according to values imminent in the interests and needs that provide an orientation towards the mass of available excitations available to it, right, that, it's, that, it's, that it senses. And these values guide the creation of the milieu in which it exists. In the simplest terms, for example, I need shelter, so I perceive the world as a series of potential places to hide and ignore most other features. Or I need to drink, and so the world is perceived in terms of watering holes and the distance between them, their relative safety, etc. Now, this is fundamentally, fundamentally no different to the way even very simple organisms are sensitive to certain stimuli that favour or threaten their survival. Uh, to the way they pay, to the way that they pay more attention to some stimuli than others. A need here is the principle by which the living being orients itself, and in doing so, creates value. As I've mentioned before in a previous uh, part of the course, notes or video, I can't quite remember now. At the very end of the essay, The Living and Its Milieu, Conguiem writes as follows. It's a passage I've cited before. From, from the irreducibility of a living being to a crossroads of influences stems the insufficiency of any biology that, in complete submission to the spirit of the physico-chemical sciences, would seek to eliminate all consideration of sense from its domain. From the biological and psychological point of view, a sense is an appreciation of values in relation to a need. And for the one who experiences and lives it, a need is an irreducible and thereby absolute system of reference. Now, needs give the living being an orientation in creating its milieu and values are imminent to these needs. The living being itself determines values that shape its creative activity and a need is an absolute and irreducible, is absolute and irreducible to anything else. Now, from this point of view, it would be a mistake to try to remove values from the story that biology tells. I think Foucault sees in this an opportunity, opportunity to extend the relation 
of knowledge and value from biological forms of life to social and political life. Without making this point explicitly, it seems to seems to lie behind his uh, elaboration here of the relation between knowledge and life, which, to be fair, was already a prominent theme in Kongiem. Paraphrasing Kongiem, in fact, Foucault writes that to form concepts is a way of living, not a way of killing life. It is a way to live in relative mobility and not a way to immobilise life. Looking ahead to material we'll read later in the semester, the integration of values and life articulated in knowledge as a way of living, and indeed of, of, of the mobility of life, may be something that Foucault finds interesting, uh, even in uh, ancient practices such as Stoicism, of course, to which he turned uh, his attention uh, in a lot of his later work. For the Stoics, attention to the workings of the body and the care we should devote to it are of a piece with ethical principles. There is a connection between life, knowledge and value that has not always been evident uh, in, in modernity. Having said that, the connection is by no means direct and does not authorise a simple inference from one domain to another. One way to link them, however, is by the concept of error. Life, by virtue of its attempt to reproduce itself, is prone to error in ways that the orbit of the planets around a star, the formation of rocks, or the emergence of weather systems apparently are not, or at least not in the same way. Life is, to, in, to quote the essay we're reading here, Life is that which is capable of error. Taking this a step further, if knowledge is a way of dealing with the exigencies of life in all its contingencies, one must agree that error is the root of what produces human thought and its history. The history of human thought, and perhaps above all of the sciences, is therefore a history of dealing with error. That is, somewhat as Bachelard proposed, a history of rectifications with no terminal moment of truth waiting for us at the end. Finally, this has consequences for the way we approach the problem of subjectivity. Foucault points to the connection between subjectivity and truth proposed by Descartes, which is to say, the idea that knowledge as a relation to truth is achieved through the subject's relation to itself. The truth of the world has its origin in the subject, or one might say one of its origins, the other being God, who guarantees that the subject is not deceived. By contrast, writes Foucault, Conguiem shows us that knowledge may be deeply rooted in the errors of life. It's a very Nietzschean thought, this, but here it indicates specifically that knowledge is part of life's response to its own inconsistency or inconstancy. This would be true even where life is articulated in and through knowledge, 
For example, if we think about the codified ways that a, li that a living being orders what is around it, or at least renegotiates that order. Therefore, knowledge is historical, not in the sense that it progresses, and not in the sense that, it, that certain basic ideas are elaborated differently from age to age, but because, in a sense, knowledge follows life, and life is intrinsically variable. As Kongiem showed, we are continually unsettled from our equilibrium and compelled to devise a new one. Error here is not a fault to be eliminated, but the deviation intrinsic to life and to which life itself responds. While all this is really about Kongiem, it is hard not to hear also an implicit reference to Foucault's own work, and in particular to the centrality of history. By this I mean that, thinking with Foucault, we do not recount a history of knowledge as if it were an object carried along on a journey of sorts, but rather understand that knowledge is itself historical because it is a form of life, and life is error and a response to error. To sum up, there are a great many things of interest, I think, in this in this short piece that, um, that I've been talking about briefly today, uh, and in the work of Conguillem that it discusses. But in particular, I want to draw attention to the connections it begins to make visible between life as it is lived by individual beings, values, knowledge, and the practice of critique. And perhaps one might add in particular to Kant's essay, What is Enlightenment? And to the idea that the task of thinking is to engage in a critique of the present. <laughs>